0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 238, Dialogue with a Catholic Listener. In July of 2018, I received an interesting five-page, single-spaced letter. It's from an interesting gentleman named Kirk Ross, who's a Roman Catholic, but he's not just any old Roman Catholic. He was raised in a biblical Unitarian family. In fact, his father, Kent Ross, was a sort of intellectual leader in the Church of God General Conference, and his brother, Seth Ross, who I know is the current executive director of the Church of God General Conference. Again, a biblical Unitarian denomination, which is my denomination. I go to Higher Ground Church in White House, Tennessee, and that's a member of the Church of God General Conference. So he's someone who has switched teams. And a few years back, he gave a long interview for a Roman Catholic TV show about his conversion, and I'll put a link for that on the blog post for this episode if you're curious and want to check it out. Short version he met a wonderful Roman Catholic woman and wanted to marry her. And so he agreed to raise the kids Catholic. And then years after attending Roman Catholic mass, he started to rethink things and reconsider things. And then he started reading Roman Catholic apologists and believing them. And so now he's a pretty convinced Roman Catholic and uh, he lodges a number of common objections to any kind of Protestantism. So Kirk Ross is an estate planning attorney and a writer, and I'll have a link for his blog on this episode. It's ekirkross.com. Like many Trinity's podcast listeners, he finds these topics fascinating, and when he discovered the podcast, he just went whole hog and pretty much listened to all of them. So in this episode, I'm going to just read his entire letter and then answer back. I think you'll find it interesting. So Kirk writes... Note that the following pages are not meant to be a proactive argument for the truth of the Trinity. That is beyond the scope of the project I've set myself here. Instead, I have summarized my reactions to many of the arguments you make throughout 200-plus episodes of your podcast. I have grouped together generally similar topics for purposes of clarity. Great. So, I'm honored that he's listened to 200-plus episodes And that's fine if he wants to cast stones against my position rather than proving a Trinitarian theology is a perfectly legitimate enterprise. So let's see what he says. Section 1, Trinity Theories slash Unity Theories. You make a very big deal out of the fact that different philosophers interpret traditional Trinitarian creedal language differently, i.e. there are multiple, quote, Trinity Theories, end quote. I don't think you're necessarily wrong there. I agree that, at its most basic, Orthodox Trinitarianism means adherence to the traditional fixed formulations. However, I disagree with how much hay you try to make out of that fact, by pointing out that there are multiple ways to approach and understand those formulations. I think you are trying to imply that they must all, therefore, be wrong. I think your suggestion is, if there isn't universal agreement and universal comprehension about the nature of the Trinity... Then the whole claim must be false." No, Kirk, uh, that's not my argument. That's actually never been my argument. I wouldn't make an argument like that because that's a non sequitur. However, he is right that I do emphasize this disagreement. So why do I do that? Well, I'm faced with a problem, which is that I want to think critically and raise critical questions about something that to many educated Christians is just a beloved and wonderful truth. And moreover, something which is obvious to all Christians, and which has been settled a long time ago, and just by definition any Christian agrees with. And honestly, a lot of theologically educated Christians are very proud of their Trinity theory. But they don't realize that it is a theory. They just attribute their view of the Trinity, whatever that is, to all, or at least to most Trinitarians. They just think, well, that's what the Trinity is. And also, Trinitarian theorizing as a whole has a kind of prestige to it, despite its extreme difficulty and obscurity, that really puts it off limits for many theologically educated Christians. And I'm trying to shake them a little bit and get them to actually think about it. So, my point is not that all these theories are false just because they really are different theories. Rather, my point is that there hasn't been some big pan-Christian discovery here. Rather, there's a kind of speculation that's become dominant. But that type of speculation encompasses different mutually incompatible theologies. In other words, clashing claims about the one God. There isn't as much agreement as first appears. So my point is that we need to carefully reconsider and re-examine this matter. It shouldn't be a closed subject. It should be an openly discussed subject, like clashing Christian claims about human freedom and divine providence, or about divine simplicity, or about God and time or about the point and the method of Christian baptism. Some people think the members of the Trinity are persons in the sense of selves, and some think that they are persons in the sense of like personalities or something along those lines. And then some people claim that the whole subject is just inexplicable. You can't really explain the meaning at all. And anytime you do try to explain it, you get into something wrong. So right there, there are three different general types of Trinity theories, the different theories have different truth conditions. That's why these differences are important because it could be that one is true and the other is false. My other reaction to this is I'm glad that he agrees that adherence to Trinitarian tradition is essentially adherence to formulations. So it's really a matter of what you're willing to stand up and say more than some very specific belief i think there are kind of vague mental images that go along with those confessions but there isn't any precise meaning that's shared by people who confess the trinity in contrast for instance consider the resurrection what does the resurrection involve well jesus used to be dead and he's not dead anymore his body assumed room temperature his heart stopped beating he stopped breathing He stopped having brain activity. Now that he's been raised, all those things have been resumed. All those normal life functions have come back. And further, the body's been transformed somehow. And we don't know the details here, but now he's been given immortality. So then he's not subject to disease and death. And pretty much all traditional Christians who believe in resurrection agree on those things which I said. You don't have anything that specific with the Trinity. If belief in the resurrection was in such difficult straits, it would just amount to saying that in some sense Jesus lives on. Right, but that could mean a whole lot of different things. He continues, There are several points arising out of this issue that I need to flag. First, you suggest in multiple episodes that if God wanted some claim to be a central doctrine of the faith, then it would be obvious in Scripture and everyone would agree on it. While I appreciate the sentiment, I think that sort of claim is demonstrably wrong. To wit, I will simply point to the doctrine of atonement. Your podcast has had multiple episodes and even an extended series all about various theories of atonement, and you have regularly acknowledged that there is not some sort of universal Christian agreement on a correct theory of atonement. At the same time, there is no more central doctrine in Christianity than the claim that Jesus died for our sins. I think it widely the case that countless Christians accept that textual formulation without having any sort of philosophical theory underpinning their claim. They are committed to a particular creedal claim about Christ without a coherent philosophical theory supporting it. There is no particular reason why the same cannot be true of the Trinity. So he's right that there are definitely clashing and competing theories of atonement. But I guess my view is that none of those theories is an essential or core part of the gospel. So what I think is essential is just something like Jesus died for your sins or Jesus died as a sacrifice for human sin, something like that. That claim can be understood. It has meaning. It doesn't tell you morally what's going on with that death or really quite exactly how that death relates to divine forgiveness. The New Testament has a lot of metaphors to throw out there to sort of express or explain the meaning, but none of those really results in a truly developed theory of atonement. That's okay with me. I think something can be a core part of the gospel and not be supported by some philosophical theory or explication. Right, but if the Trinity were like this, it would just be something like God is in some way three or God is three in one. Right, which could mean a whole bunch of different things. And most partisans of Trinity theories are not happy to just leave things there, although some of the negative Mysterians come close to that. I think if God thought something was important enough to be a core part of the gospel that should never be lost, then it would be clearly communicated, and uh, it would be widely held, if not universally held, God might still have other motives in virtue of which he would allow some confusion or some denial and so on. God tolerates quite a few unfortunate and bad things in the world. But yeah, I think my claim is true. I don't think the comparison with atonement really undermines the case of Trinity. I mean, being universally held or nearly so is one thing, but more to the point, given that a teaching of a tri-personal God appeared for the first time in the latter part of the 300s, it's pretty incomprehensible that a core essential part of the gospel could be unpreached for more than three centuries in Christian history, particularly right at the beginning when we haven't had all that much time to mess it up. So that suggests that it's not core or essential part of the Christian message. However, it's part of small-c Catholic orthodoxy, and so a part of Roman Catholic orthodoxy. When the Trinity's podcast returns, am I exaggerating the historical importance of biblical Unitarian Christianity? Kirk Ross continues. Second, you like to contrast the existence of, quote, competing Trinity theories, end quote, with the existence of biblical Unitarianism. That's capitalized. Rhetorically, you refer to biblical Unitarianism as if it were some sort of monolithic theological view as opposed to the fractured views of the Trinity. That is quite wrong, and I think you do your listeners a disservice by implying such, I believe you have identified yourself as a Socinian-type Unitarian. This is the Unitarianism I grew up on, and it is the version taught by Anthony Buzzard, someone with whom I was quite starstruck as a young man, much as you are now. However, there are many other, quote, unity theories, end quote, and I would love to hear you explore some of those on the podcast. For example, the Ebionites, the Arians, and Michael Servetus were all Unitarians but they most certainly did not share a common Christology. I think admitting that there are as many unity theories as there are trinity theories, to use your terminology, is important. So to respond to this section, I don't idolize Sir Anthony Buzzard. I do respect him and appreciate his work, but there are a number of things I disagree with him about. I do like the term biblical Unitarianism, even though it's of recent coinage, just simply because it's a descriptive term. It's Unitarians, but it's Unitarians who are trying to base their theology on the New Testament and indeed on the whole Bible. But I hope I don't give the impression that it's some one dominant view that's really prominent through Christian history. It's not. I don't really think this criticism is fair. It may be sometimes when I say Unitarian, he thinks biblical Unitarian, and he might have misheard some things that I've said. What I claim used to be a darn near universal view in Christianity is just Unitarian theology, which is the view that the one God just is the Father and not anyone else. And that's what you see in all the early church, except for the modalists who seem to collapse the Father and Son into the same one, and indeed the same being. So, they would think the one God is the Father and the Son, and maybe the Holy Spirit too. But setting them aside, I mean, all the people that I would describe as subordinationists, they're Unitarian subordinationists. People like Origen, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and Justin. Those are among the earlier adopters of logos theories. And then there were Christians who rejected logos theories, who usually nowadays are called dynamic monarchians. These people didn't collapse the Father and the Son like modalistic monarchians, but rather they held that the Logos, which was in Jesus, was something less than a person, something like a power or action of the Father, that is, of the one God. And those probably existed in significant numbers at the end of the 100s and the first half of the 200s, but we still find them in the 300s as well. You can check out my podcast on Photonus, the bishop, who held to that sort of view, famously. So yeah, I'm perfectly happy to admit that there are clashing and contrasting Unitarian theologies, just like there are contrasting and clashing Trinitarian theologies. He's completely right that there are Christological differences between these Unitarians, and the reason is really simple. The reason is that the New Testament is really crystal clear that the one true God just is the Father himself, and so not anybody else and not the three of them together. Call that the characteristic thesis of Unitarian Christian theology. That's really clear. It's also really clear that Jesus is supposed to be a man, not just human, not just possessor of a human nature, not just like a man, but yeah, a real man, although with an interestingly different origin. But here are some things that are not as clear in the New Testament. Is Jesus in some sense divine? Did Jesus in some sense pre-exist? Did God in some sense create the world through him? A lot of readers have thought so, and honestly, that's just a bit less clear. And so that's why some Unitarians think one way and some think the other way. Also, the whole matter of the Holy Spirit is less than perfectly clear. I think the bulk of the New Testament isn't different than the Old Testament about God's Spirit. However, there are some vivid personifications in various New Testament passages that I think lead people to think that the Holy Spirit really is a self in addition to the Father and to the Son. So there are good reasons why there are these divisions, reasons that have to do with the New Testament. And I'm willing to admit those differences. They're not something I celebrate. but there's something I have to acknowledge. He continues, And in this vein, I need to mention your rhetorical timeline. You were very fond of making the claim that the Church Fathers were, quote, all Unitarians, end quote, until sometime in the 4th century. I think that claim is grossly inaccurate, especially when it's used for the rhetorical move you're making with it. It is true that there was a development in the articulation and understanding of Christology throughout the first centuries of the Church. And I think you're generally right about the rise of Logos theory leading into subordinationism, leading to a full articulation of Trinitarian orthodoxy in the 4th century, etc. However, the very history you outline belies your simultaneous claim that they were all Unitarians until the 300s, if, by Unitarian, you mean a Christology similar to yours. You specifically point to, among others, Origen, Justin Martyr, and Tertullian. You baldly state that they were Unitarians. Yet it is emphatically the case that they were not Socinian-style Unitarians. By the way, they all accepted the divinity of Christ, and you even make the point that Origen regularly referred to Christ as, quote, a second God, and, quote, they did not share your Christology. What bothers me most is the rhetorical move you're making with this claim that everyone before Nicaea or so was a Unitarian, You're trying very hard to create the impression that all Christians were your kind of Unitarian until about the 300s, and then, all of a sudden, the idea of a triune God appears out of nowhere. I think you do your listeners a disservice by suggesting that there was not a centuries-long trend going on there. Your type of Unitarianism, even if it was present in the first century, which I do not necessarily grant, is awfully hard to find among the Church Fathers, if it is there at all. So, there's some misunderstanding here. I'm not trying to get away with what he claims. In fact, in my paper, Tertullian, the Unitarian, I explicitly explain what I mean by the term Unitarian, and that was an early podcast as well. I stand by my claim that the bulk of the Church Fathers were Unitarian, not only up to Nicaea, but a good distance past Nicaea. They were Unitarian in the sense that they thought the one true God was the Father only. They did not agree that the one true God was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what makes them Unitarian. Now, I admit someone could come along and suppose that Unitarian means someone who holds to a, quote, Sicinian Christology. That's just not what I mean by it. Why am I using terms like that? Well, to really fairly compare uh, and weigh competing theories, you need to have descriptions of them that are as neutral as you can get. And it's better to have labels that are descriptive rather than just bad guy, good guy labels. So what a lot of theologians will do is if somebody they think is on the winning team, they'll call them Trinitarian, even if they don't teach a triune God. They'll call them Trinitarian just because later orthodoxy was in a lot of ways friendly to people like Tertullian and Origen, although not entirely. But anyway... They just want to call all the people who they think are on the right trajectory Trinitarian. And then they call the other ones Sibelians or Subordinationists. And they use that as a loaded negative term. Or Arians. Look, uh, the term Arian is stupid. It was always a polemical term. I use the term Subordinationist, and I mean it in a neutral sense. It just means that in some sense the Holy Spirit and the Son are of lesser ontological status than the Father. Trinitarian just means... You believe there's a tripersonal God and that the persons are all equally divine. So that implies that they're all uh, eternal and have whatever divinity requires. And somehow all together they're one God. So yeah, I'm trying to properly label and classify views in the least polemical way possible so that people can actually think about these things and not just say, oh, this is a heresy, that's a heresy. Well, I don't have to worry about that, do I? and then just go sailing along with just the vaguest idea of what orthodoxy is supposed to be. So no, by Unitarian, I don't mean people with a Christology similar to mine. I've never meant that. Now, about the early fathers accepting the divinity of Christ, yes, in a sense, but only in the sense that they rejected, quote, mere man views. So, I mean, Origen's views here are bizarre. He thinks that in Christ there is a man, a full-blown man. And mysteriously united with that man is the second God, the Logos. Really, he's got two Jesuses. He's got two sons of God. Uh, The one he's really interested in is the divine Logos. The man gets kind of pushed off to the side, although he's pretty clear in several passages that he does believe in that. So Origen, yes, in a sense, believes in the deity of Christ, although his views are a Christological disaster. Other people, like Irenaeus and Tertullian, in some sense they believe in the deity of Christ, uh, but the sense in which they think Christ is divine doesn't require omniscience or eternality in some cases or existing independently. So they really do have a second lower tier of divinity. And so if by the deity of Christ you mean something like compliant with Trinitarian orthodoxy, then they don't believe in the deity of Christ, most of these early people. So, no, I am not trying hard to create the impression that everyone was a Socinian, basically, until the 300s. But I am saying, yes, that most Christians were Unitarians in thinking that the one God is the Father. Just like you hear at the start of many classic creeds, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Yes, that's really what they thought. And that's the kind of view you see in the New Testament as well. About a trend going on, I mean... There's a kind of fallacy, I think, here of thinking that something happened, therefore it was destined to happen, or therefore it was inevitable that it was going to happen. I don't grant for a second that Trinitarian orthodoxy, the way it came out, was inevitable. If you actually read the history of the 4th century debates, nothing looks inevitable there. The trajectory, there is a kind of trajectory, I would say, in making more and more exalted claims about the Logos. So once the Logos got in there, the Logos as opposed to the man, or opposed to the body, or opposed to the human nature. Once the Logos got in there, yeah, at first he came into existence a finite time ago, but then by the time of origin, now they're claiming that he's always existed. They claimed that he was divine, all the way back in the time of Justin, but then there was inflation about what that meant. So yeah, I mean, there was a kind of uh, direction there, unfortunately. Did the Trinity just come out of nowhere? Not exactly. I wouldn't put it that way. But that is in fact when you see the first Trinitarian Confessions. That is just before the Second Ecumenical Council, the one at Constantinople. So, to summarize this section, a lot of what he supposes is just a cheap rhetorical ploy, I say, is a serious attempt to classify and to give out neutral enough descriptions so that you can really properly sort out the history of Christian theologies. When the Trinity podcast returns, more objections concerning history and divine providence to kirk ross's letter he calls section two theory of history speaking of history this is the area where i think you are leaving a gaping chasm in your explanations one of the most compelling reasons for me to enter the catholic church was because it was the church i saw growing out of the jesus movement i lean heavily here on christ's promise to never leave his church So one of the reasons I accepted the Trinity was because that was the truth that the Church, protected and guided by the Holy Spirit, articulated. Now, I fully recognize that this is a view subject to many interesting challenges, especially from Protestants, but you never engage the question. Once or twice, the issue comes up and you rhetorically shrug your shoulders. In fact, in episode 125 or 126, you literally say, I have no idea why God would let his church stray so far from the truth. I find that sort of dismissiveness insufficient as a reason to reject the claim that God has been guiding and will continue to guide his people from the Garden of Eden right through the second coming. Let me respond to this before continuing through the section. You really can't bring our disagreement down to that he thinks that God guided his church and I deny it. Uh, It's not a case of guided or not. That's just too simplistic. Of course, I agree that Christ never abandoned this movement and continues to operate in it worldwide. I agree that he kept his promise. I think on the real essentials, God has very widely preserved those in all corners of Christianity except the really far-off liberal wings in the last 150 years or so. Here's an analogy. Think about Judaism in the time of Jesus. Had God preserved his precious truth as revealed in the Old Testament writings at the time of Jesus? Well, you want to say yes, right? Because God is faithful, and why would God abandon his chosen people? I don't think he did ever abandon them, but the situation at the time of Jesus is complicated. You have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots. And some of these groups are, we Christians think, really quite off about some fairly important things, such as belief in resurrection or the existence of angels. Other Jews are very, very Hellenized. Out of all the groups in Judaism, which one is theologically and practically the closest to Jesus? I think the answer is, obviously, the Pharisees. And yet Jesus, in a number of gospel passages, excoriates the Pharisees. Yet at the same time, he seems to, in large measure, agree with them. The Pharisees are the direct predecessors to the rabbis of rabbinic Judaism. They're the predecessors to the Jews that resisted the Christian movement and whose errors continue to resist Christianity to this day. Right, so you can believe in divine providence and not think that any of those major groups had it all correct. And you also want to distinguish ordinary believers from any kind of precise sectarian elite players. Was the worship of Yahweh kept alive? Was adherence to the law of Moses kept alive? Yes, I think it was. I don't think that God abandons his people. But He puts up with a lot of stuff for the moment. Now, about accepting the Trinity because the church teaches it, I mean, we still have the awkward fact that it's coming along really rather lately. If it was really an essential part of the gospel, you see it being preached right there in Acts 2. But of course, you don't see it there at all. And you find a lot of language there that no Trinitarian would abide by. But let me keep going because he presses his point. As an example, let's pick a really generous date for your views. Let's say that there were Unitarians of whatever stripe up until 400 AD or so. From there, they indisputably disappear from the historical record until around the time of Blaurock and the gang in 1525 or so. So for over 1,000 years, there were no Unitarians anywhere in Christian history. The claim that this says nothing about the action of God through history needs more than a rhetorical shrug of the shoulders. Recall that the entire Old Testament is the story of God's revelation of himself through history and the Jewish people. Then the New Testament continues the story. And then, whoops, God's plan of salvation disappears from history for over a thousand years. I would love to hear you articulate a theory of history that accommodates your Christology. Consider an analogy to your version of history. The first Jewish temple was built in the mid-10th century BC or so under Solomon. For the next several centuries, sacrifices and worship were offered in that temple pursuant to the regulations set down in the Torah. Those regulations certainly developed over some period of time until they were codified in particular creedal language, that is, the Pentateuch. Now imagine that some random Hebrew Levite stands up in 650 BC or so and loudly explains that everyone misunderstood Moses. All that temple worship and stuff was not what God had meant at Mount Sinai. It was all supposed to be metaphorical. We just had it all wrong for 300 years. Good thing I'm here now to straighten everyone out. Or can we trust that God was guiding the broad theological and liturgical development of his people? I extend the same principle into Christian history. Okay. Let's go back to his point in the previous section that he doubts that there were any biblical Unitarian type believers in early Christianity at all. But here he's granting that maybe there were some up until the year 400 or so. Well, again, the issue is Unitarians, not biblical Unitarians. But as far as Unitarians who don't believe in the pre existence of Christ, have you ever read Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Presumably they would have mentioned the pre existence of Christ if they had believed in it. And presumably, there were communities of people enjoying those letters who didn't believe in preexistence. And this is apart from any of the marginal groups like the Ebionites or the Nazareans. Of course, it's also possible to interpret John and Paul as not teaching preexistence either. It's really in the second half of the 100s that Logos theory starts to establish itself among the elites, but these elites, people like Tertullian and Origen, report to us that common folk, people they considered kind of uncouth, people who aren't as Hellenized, honestly, they report that common people say, hey, we don't preach two gods. Where did you get that two gods stuff from? That is the one true God. And then also the second God, the one who is the direct creator, as opposed to the indirect creator. No, we think there's one God. There's one creator. That's the father. There was widespread monarchian resistance in various places in the latter decades of the 100s and well on into the 200s and beyond. So we know that there were people resisting the Logos theories. Um, What we have surviving really are the views of the elites that were favored by later Catholic Orthodoxy. So someone like Origen or Tertullian, probably not your ordinary type Christian. I mean, for all we know, that's 1% or 5% or 15%, not 75%. It's just that records of ordinary Christians are practically non-existent from that era. We can glean little things from shreds of liturgy and artwork and things like that, but common folk don't write works of apologetics or treatises of systematic theology. So, he's way overconfident on projecting views inconsistent with biblical Unitarianism so far back. Did they disappear in 400? No, they didn't, because the so-called Arians were still around for quite a while, for many decades after they were declared the losers in that long discussion at the Second Ecumenical Council. So, when do they disappear? I mean, I don't think it ever completely went away. And... As soon as ordinary people began to really commonly read the Bible again, I think the idea that the one true God is the Father just crept back in, no matter what their official confessions were. At least that was a very common occurrence. It's not terribly clear quite how Trinitarian ordinary believers are to this day. And your answer is also going to vary according to what you think is the right understanding of the Trinity the one-self people are going to see things one way, the three-self people are going to see things another way, and the Mysterians are going to see things yet another way. I think, Mr. Ross, maybe you're looking at church history with a kind of institutionalist mindset. From the fact that you don't have large organized groups holding to non-Trinitarian views, uh, it doesn't really follow that those views entirely died out. And you have to remember that the Catholic movement evolved to not believe in religious freedom, and coincidentally this happened at the same time that they settled this long-standing dispute between the, quote, Arians and the, quote, Nicenes. Thank God, in modern times, the Roman Catholic Church has come to believe in religious freedom, but for the bulk of its history, it didn't. So that's part of the reason for the paucity. To be fair, the early Protestants, a lot of them, did not believe in religious freedom either. So yeah, we don't know that for over a thousand years there were no Unitarians anywhere in Christian history, as he alleges. Nor do I think that God's plan of salvation disappeared from history for a thousand years. I think the essentials of the Christian message are pretty simple. I explain this a little bit in Podcast 85 called Heretic, Four Approaches to Dropping H-Bombs, In my view, the basics of the Christian message did not ever disappear from history. So my views don't have as big a problem with divine providence as he supposes. And the case is really not at all like his imagined Jewish scenario. Now about God guiding the broad theological and liturgical development of his people, I do see divine providence there. The Gnostics lost. The Marcionites disappeared liberal christianity as came into existence in the 1800s i think is dying off and also we can't stay in just abstract mode here you can't just say on general sort of armchair grounds that god must have perfectly guided christian history he just didn't all kinds of terrible problems have occurred i have of course a lot of the standard protestant complaints I think that, in effect, the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox movements endorsed Christian idolatry, as opposed to just being against idolatry. I think the development of bishops into these little monarchs with castles and property and lots of money and power was a total disaster in Christian history. I disagree with sacramental theology. I disagree with the idea that you're literally eating Jesus' body and blood When you eat that little wafer and take that sip of wine. I disagree with the prominent role that Mary has come to play and devotion to the saints has come to play in traditions like Roman Catholicism and in Eastern Orthodoxy. If you have these disagreements and kind of on the grounds of Scripture and reason, then you can't ignore that when you're postulating about divine providence and God's superintendence over history. We also have to keep the facts squarely in front of us, I think. Now, I know that if you convert to Catholicism, your judgments about these things are going to shift. Let me try to not beg the question. Look, if you're a Roman Catholic, you think that lots of terrible mistakes have been made. There was a time when the Roman Catholic movement didn't really encourage, in fact, kind of discourage their people from studying scripture. You probably disagree with that if you're a contemporary Catholic. There was a time when Common Catholic moral teaching would tell married couples that uh, intercourse was only for the purpose of procreation. Well, that seems kind of extreme, doesn't it? They would also get lots of unhelpful advice about sexual positions, and the bizarre idea of a Josephite marriage was put out there as some kind of neat idea. If you're a contemporary Catholic, you should think that all of these things were foolish the practice of indulgences from the time of martin luther is probably something you disagree with if you're a roman catholic you had widespread simony you had a lot of immorality among monks and nuns and priests you had bishops passing down their precious high offices to their children often illegitimate children you had popes that basically bought their office you had periods where there were competing popes So, I mean, there are a lot of um, unfortunate occurrences that you think God has allowed, even within the life of the one true church. So, even for a Roman Catholic, you're going to think there are a lot of fits and starts in church history. God allows a lot of mistakes, including, you think, Protestantism and Eastern Orthodoxy. It's easy to think that these naughty groups have divorced themselves from God's true church, but my point is that in your view... God's true church has made her share of mistakes and had her share of missteps. We could disagree about what goes on that list, but I think if you're honest and if you study Catholic history, you will have a list like that. Okay, but then you agree with me that God allows his true church to go astray, not just on unimportant things, but sometimes on important things, even while preserving the essence of the message. It's just that you think the true church is those churches under bishops who are in fellowship with the Pope, and I think the true church is just people who believe the gospel, people who've been regenerated, who have responded to divine grace. It's not a question of God guided his church or he abandoned it. We all think that God allows some tragedies, even tragedies when it comes to church practice and doctrine. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what about this claim that Jesus is God? And let's talk about authority. Section 3 of Kirk Ross's letter is entitled, Jesus is God. He writes, Evidently, evangelical Protestantism spends a lot of time making the argument that Jesus is God. I assume that's why you spend so much time interacting with that claim in the podcast. I suppose that's mostly fine, since I think your goal is primarily to engage with your fellow evangelicals. The thing is, traditional Trinitarianism never really makes that sort of claim, except in a very generic way i.e. Christ is divine. Orthodox Trinitarianism claims that Jesus is one of three consubstantial persons in the one Godhead. As I think you know, the traditional view very specifically states that the Son and the Father are not identical. So you spend a great deal of time arguing against a position that Orthodox traditional Christians don't really hold. I would never say, Jesus is God, full stop, if by that I meant that Jesus is identical with the Father, and neither would any other well-catechized Catholic. So, in an answer to that, yes, evangelical Protestants, but especially some of their popular-level apologists, do put a lot of stock in the claim that Jesus is God, and they generally are not very clear what they mean by that, although they very often seem to be assuming the meaning that Jesus just is God himself. In other words, that they're numerically identical. Is that obviously inconsistent with Scripture? Yes. Yes because Scripture presents the two of them as having differed, and nothing can differ from itself at a single time. So, in a sense, you're right to dismiss that. Saying that traditional Trinitarians never make that claim is going too far. These are precisely people who consider themselves traditional Trinitarians. The same apologists who make this argument also spend a lot of time defending the Trinity as they understand it. You know, there are ways of interpreting the traditional formulas where... A natural way to express the result would be that Jesus just is God. So, for instance, if you take a oneself understanding of the Trinity, you think the persons are really just kind of like ways that God is, so you could then turn around and say Jesus is God, meaning that there aren't two beings there, it's just one being, God, and then there's a mode of that God or distinction within that God or a way that God lives or a way that God is. Yeah, but that's just God right angry dale is dale it's not somebody else really you can talk about angry dale versus dale but really you're just talking about one guy right so you talk about god the son or god as savior and you think that this is just god in a certain way of living or interacting with his creation yeah you're going to turn right around and say that jesus is god it's not just protestants it really is a lot of catholics too And a lot of people, I think, just give up on the whole Trinity terminology and they just kind of boil it down to just that Jesus is God. And man, of course. He continues, But speaking of the issue of Christ's divinity, I do think you give very short shrift to the dual nature of Christ as an answer to a lot of the challenges you raise to Trinitarian doctrine. By way of example, you repeatedly and correctly state that Jesus was a quote, real man, end quote, in the New Testament. You go from there to say that this precludes him from also being divine. The answer to that conundrum lies precisely in the dual nature theory, and I don't think you've really engaged that theory in a meaningful way. I would be very interested to hear you engage this theory from a strictly philosophical perspective, regardless of its truth value, which you deny, I think it answers many of the philosophical challenges you raise. To combine these last two paragraphs, I think it's likely that you tend to skate over the dual nature issues because Jesus is God apologists don't use it and you spend so much of your time interacting with them. If you stretched out to interact with Orthodox Trinitarianism, the dual nature theory does a lot of the heavy philosophical lifting. On this point, I would strongly suggest you engage some careful Catholic commenters. Some top choices would be Dr. Peter Kreeft, Professor of Philosophy at Boston College, or Dr. Scott Hahn, Professor of Biblical Theology at Franciscan University. Both are well-respected academics who have published widely on these types of topics. I think they would add some very useful variety to the podcast. So that's the end of his section three. He's got a good point here. I haven't interacted very much with Two Natures theory on this podcast or in my published writing. The simple reason for that is because I'm still trying to do something helpful about the various Trinity theories. I don't feel like I've fully addressed that whole wad of traditions yet. It's not that I haven't thought about all this two nature stuff. Actually, I've taught a whole class devoted to it, a whole semester-long college class several times, I think maybe four or five times, And I've really read comprehensively through the early stuff and sorted out all different kinds of views. If you want to see some of my thoughts boiled down into a short statement, check out my lecture called Clarifying Catholic Christologies, and I'll put a link to that video on the blog post for this episode. So he's right that I haven't in this podcast gone a lot into two natures. He's also right in that the hope is that... This will somehow reconcile Jesus being fully divine and yet a real man too. Yeah, that's the rub. I don't think the different sorts of theories actually accomplish that. But that's a point that really needs to be argued. I did devote a couple of episodes to this. Episodes 143 and 144, which were an interview with the Roman Catholic analytic philosopher and analytic theologian Dr. Timothy Paul... He wrote what I think is the best book yet, trying to defend the coherence of what he calls conciliar Christology. So what all the ecumenical councils actually taught, wrap that all up, call it conciliar Christology, he tries to defend that. And he comes up with some really interesting points. And I think some of what he's doing is a correction to some misguided theorizing in the field. So for instance, he wants nothing to do with kenosis theories. And he points out that those historically would have just been rejected as heresy. I think that's right. They only started coming around in the 1800s. He also rejects views on which Christ's two natures are just two like sets of properties had by one being or oneself. He points out correctly that the people who came up with the famous two natures statements at the Third and Fourth Ecumenical Councils in particular and beyond that He points out that they said that one of the natures suffered and died on a cross. But to die on a cross looks like you have to be a man, but he doesn't call it that. He calls it a human nature. His answer here gets a little philosophically involved, so I won't go into it. But yeah, uh, it's a perfectly fair point that I haven't said enough about two natures and that the hope of those is that they will show some coherent way of thinking where someone can be both fully divine and yet a human being. Would I have on Dr. Kreeft or Dr. Hahn? Sure, maybe. I'd just have to have some good idea, some good excuse to do that. Section 4 he calls authority. He says, now we move on to the question of sources of authority. This is the key underlying issue of the whole matter. It's also a slam dunk for me. Obviously, I grew up in a Sola Scriptura environment. I am now a committed Roman Catholic, explicitly acknowledging the teaching magisterium of the large C Catholic Church. One of the primary drivers of my conversion was precisely this issue of authority. Quite bluntly, the doctrine of Sola Scriptura is logically inconsistent and cannot be right. Therefore, I am Catholic. Well, that seems like a bit of a leap, but let me continue. This question can be approached from countless directions, and many others have done so. However, I will restrict myself to one logical challenge. Put bluntly, the Bible does not teach Sola Scriptura. Therefore, a Bible-believing Christian cannot adhere to Sola Scriptura. I am tempted to dig deeply into this idea, but as you mentioned in one of your early episodes, brevity is the soul of wit. I think the logic of this claim is obvious, so I will not expand on it. I would be very interested to hear you discuss your theory of doctrinal authority, specifically because it is axiomatic to your philosophical arguments. You also often suggest that the Bible is easy to read and understand for anyone who is truly open to God. I could write quite a few pages about that, but I'll just make one point. You have indicated that you are a dualist. If I understand your use of that term, then you accept that people have immortal souls and you are confident that the Bible teaches this truth. If central Christian teachings are so obvious for anyone who really wants to understand them, then why does Anthony Buzzard disagree with you vehemently on this issue? See his book, Our Fathers Who Aren't in Heaven. You go down a pretty dangerous road when you claim that disagreement with your own views is evidence that a person doesn't really want to understand God. There is only one more point I'll make on the issue of authority. The logic of rejecting sola scriptura is straightforward and airtight, The Bible doesn't teach it, so how can it be right? The question, then, is why so many Protestants continue to adhere to it when it is so demonstrably false. I think the answer lies in the consequences of acknowledging its falsity. If Sola Scriptura is false, then how does a Christian know what Christian truth is? Rejecting Sola Scriptura only leaves two options, one, agnosticism, or two, Catholicism. A Sola Scriptura Protestant knows too much of the truth of God to be agnostic but he's also ferociously convinced that Catholicism simply has to be wrong. So neither of the possible options are psychologically permissible. Therefore, since both of the alternatives are unacceptable, the Sola Scriptura Protestant just sits on Sola Scriptura despite the fact that it is demonstrably false. That was true of me, and I think that explains why a lot of Protestants just skate over the logical inconsistency of Sola Scriptura. Conclusion. Writing these pages has been an excellent exercise for me to clarify my own thinking on this topic. I have appreciated the hours I've spent listening to your podcast, and I'll continue to do so. I hope you accept these points in the spirit of Christian debate in which they are meant. Christ is all that matters, and perhaps we can all help each other understand him a little better. Regards, Kirk Ross. Thank you, Kirk. I do accept it in a spirit of Christian debate, and I'm really glad to have you as a listener And as I've said so far, you have made some good points. And on some other points, I'm happy to have a chance to clarify or to argue back. Now about authority, he doesn't say what he thinks sola scriptura is, but he seems to think it's something like no religious or theological claim is true unless it's taught by the Bible. And so then he's saying, well, sola scriptura isn't taught by the Bible. Right. If that's what sola scriptura were, then it would be self-refuting. If it were true, then it would be false, right? Things are only true when they're explicitly taught by scripture, or at least things concerning religion. Yeah, that, what I just said, that's not taught by scripture, and so if that's true, it has to be false, and so it's not something that can be intelligently asserted. That's a silly methodology, isn't it? But it's a straw man. That's not actually something that Protestants teach, although it is maybe a position that you encounter in popular works of Roman Catholic apologetics. I mean, never mind Protestantism. It's just crazy to think that nothing's true unless it's in the Bible, right? It's true that you can't run your car on apple juice, but that's not in the Bible. If you restrict things and say, well, religious truths have to be in the Bible or they're not true, that's false just as obviously if i say well it's false that god is in time and in the same sense not in time that's true and it's a religious or a theological claim but it's not in the bible the bible doesn't anywhere say that it's false that god is both in time and outside of time the thing is some claims are self-evident things which are self-evident you have to Acknowledge, you have to agree with as long as you understand them. They just sort of bring their own evidence with them. Some things are self evidently true, some things are self evidently false. I mean, it's true that if God exists, then God exists. It's true that if there is exactly one God, then there aren't two gods. That's not in the Bible, what I just said, and yet it's self evident. So it's something that any Christian ought to accept. In Episodes 222 and 223, I discuss a number of self-evident truths which are relevant to Trinity and Incarnation theories, so check that out if you're interested. Is Sola Scriptura one of those? Well, what is Sola Scriptura? Can we define it in a non-crazy, not obviously false sense? I'm not sure. I mean, that's not really been part of my Protestantism. I mean, I think what he's pushing here is the idea that Any Christian really needs the Roman Catholic Church to be its ultimate authority, because how do you even know that those 27 books are what should make up the New Testament, for instance? Well, that's an interesting question, how one could possibly know that. I'm not sure one has to know it to follow Christ or to be a good Christian, But Protestants think that by the guidance of the Holy Spirit or by the testimony of Christian tradition more broadly, they think that they can rationally accept the authority of Scripture, and they don't think that they need the Roman Catholic Church to come along and say, these are the things which we say are Scripture. If you want to dig a little bit deeper on this question of knowledge about what constitutes Scripture, or does belief in Scripture really require belief in the Roman Catholic Church, you might want to check out chapters three and four of a book called Roman But Not Catholic, What Remains at Stake 500 Years After the Reformation. It's written by a formerly Roman Catholic, now Protestant theologian or historian of theology named Kenneth Collins, and the co-author is evangelical Christian philosopher Jerry Walls, who I was happy to feature in podcast 218. They go into some different views that have been discussed about how a Christian should understand the authority of the New Testament and how that might be known. I don't have a lot to say about it here, and also the episode's getting kind of long. So I agree the Bible doesn't teach Sola Scriptura in the sense that he meant. I'm not sure it teaches Sola Scriptura in any sense. My view is more like, I believe in God, and I believe that Jesus is God's Messiah, and I believe that he successfully taught his apostles, and there was a apostolic movement empowered by the Spirit of God, and that as time went on, deviations were made from the Course. And so, the safest way to go is to stick with what you have good reason to think is apostolic, and use that as a guide for correcting later teachings and later practices, if those practices clash with something that's in that early tradition. Of course, some later traditions clash with experience or with reason as well, such as belief in transubstantiation or some formulations of the Trinity or the Incarnation. Some versions of those doctrines will clash with reason, but others won't. Do I think the Bible's easy to read and understand for anyone who's truly open to God? Yes, but only on the essentials. I don't think dualism isn't essential. I am a dualist, but really I am so for both scriptural and philosophical reasons, which I won't go into, but I'll put a link on the blog post for this episode if you want to know what some of those philosophical reasons are, because I've talked about that in some introduction to philosophy lectures on YouTube. I don't think the soul is immortal. I think the soul could cease to live and could cease to exist, but I think it's a real thing. I think the Bible teaches it, but I don't claim that that's obvious. In fact, the Church of God denomination is officially against it. I don't have any killer, knockdown, compelling objections to that, but I have my reasons. So yeah, that example doesn't trouble me. I don't see why rejecting sola scriptura leaves you with either agnosticism or Catholicism. I just don't. Why couldn't you be a Baptist or an Eastern Orthodox Christian, much less some kind of Unitarian? I don't get it. There needs to be more of an argument there. Maybe that's just another conversation. So yeah, in conclusion, I would say be very careful reading popular apologists. The Catholic ones push some kind of outrageous stuff. I think the most outrageous thing they push is something that just was mentioned in passing here which would be traditional Roman Catholic claims about apostolic succession and about the papacy. Historians don't think that Peter was the first pope. They don't think that there was a single one bishop in Rome in the first century. They don't think there was a single unique bishop in Rome until sometime well into the second century, possibly even into the third century, some historians think. And the lists of bishops that are allegedly traced back to the Apostles are considered to be fiction. We tend to think this material is ancient and wonderful because it's from so, we think, close to the time of the Apostles. But, you know, something written in the year 180 is really quite far from the time of the Apostles. As I record this podcast, it's 2018. 150 years ago, it was 1868. Now let me ask you, can a person, even a fairly smart, educated, and informed person in the year 2018, can they just be, let's say, full of it regarding events that happened in 1868? Well, they sure can. In fact, it's very easy, especially when that person adheres to some ideology for which the tall tale in question would be convenient. Was he close to the apostolic era? Sure. I mean, say the apostolic era goes up to about 95. Yeah, but he might be 80, 90 years away from that. Can a person in 2018, even an intelligent and reasonably educated person, be badly misinformed about something that happened in 1938? Yes, they can. I'll leave you to come up with your own examples of that. Now, I'm not making some kind of general skeptical point about Christian tradition or about historical traditions in general. I'm just explaining why historians are unimpressed with the traditional claims about apostolic succession. You see this list of bishops allegedly going back to the time of the apostles cited by Irenaeus, and maybe he sincerely believes it. But the problem is the lack of evidence for there being a single bishop system in the first century. There seems to not have been such a system then. And the evidence for a single bishop in charge of the Roman churches is kind of surprisingly late. In conclusion, thanks again to Kirk Ross for this interesting letter. I appreciate the challenges and objections and the interaction. I do hope to have more Roman Catholic Theologians and other scholars on this podcast in the future. And I do hope to go more into these issues that are raised by Roman Catholic apologists because I think they're interesting and important and I think that they're worth arguing about. Thanks for listening. This week's Thinking Music has been the track sanctuary of the sky gods by nathaniel wyvern as always there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track Trinities podcast please share this episode on social media like twitter or facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the itunes store for your country you can also support the Trinities podcast by giving a certain donation per episode if you're interested in that please visit patreon.com trinities finally let us know what you think give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement.